Hey, Chris. So uh, we wanted to do a little podcast together, didn't we? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, give us a chance to rant about things without necessarily having to have a topic. Yeah. Um, so I've got a big handful of topics. So I guess we should probably um, start with the thing that we were talking about when we first started thinking about doing the show, which I think is the chip and pin buzzing sound at the cash register, right? Uh, what was that? Remind me of that. Um, so, you know, like the, I, I feel like the first rant that people want to do on a show like this is the Norman door, which is a door that is hard to tell which direction it opens in. Right. And then the second thing is what I think started us off, um, which is, um, when you put your, um, your credit card at the cash register, when you put it in so it can read the chip. And when it's, it tells you to leave the card in so that it can process the transaction. Then when it's done, it makes a buzzing noise. And, um, and I think everybody agrees that the buzzing noise is so bad. It's like nearly traumatic. Yes. I thought, I thought for sure this was what we were talking about. No, I don't think we've talked about this. I'm well, <laughs> I, I am perfectly happy to, to talk about that because, uh, yes, I mean, th this is all under the general heading of like cognitive design. And yeah. that's, that's been my kind of like soapbox that I've carried with me for now. Oh, I don't even know since um, the early 90s. Um, when I was first uh, introduced to Don Norman and uh, the idea oh, wow. of you, cognitive you met science. Him. Uh, yeah, so I uh, I was in San Diego and, and some friends went to UCSD and were in the cognitive science program, which is what he started there. If you read his design of everyday things, he's talking about, you know, rooms and classrooms and the lighting in those rooms. Uh, those are all at UCSD. And so... Um, I sat in on a few of the classes uh, at UCSD in cognitive science uh, because it's a fascinating subject. And it's one of those things where, at least for me, I can just jump in from the side and say, okay, I get this. This is how mm -hmm. my own brain works. Um, mm -hmm. it, when you say things like, you know, we'll talk about the doors in a minute, but like, you know, when you make this buzz, my brain gets very angry. And yep. it, you can put it in a simple term like that. And cognitive design is all about that is you put the thing in front of a real person and then you watch what its effect on them is and if it's making them angry that's bad <laughs> i mean it's i didn't have to use any technical terms for that and it's mm -hmm. it's very clear and oftentimes you know the the big problem of course because that seems very obvious the big problem is that people will design something they'll design something very complicated over the course of years without ever putting it in front of somebody mm. or without ever asking. It's like, Hey, maybe it's awful that it makes this sound. So, yeah. Um, and, and it's funny because, uh, there's a, there's a brand of POS hardware, a, a point of sale hardware, like cash register and like that entire suite. Um, that Did I like, I, no, no, no. It's, it's actually the exact opposite. Um, they, they seem to only exist in, uh, gas stations and this particular, um, POS system or, or OS that they've loaded on the, on the computer makes a Mario coin noise, um, when the transaction is complete. Okay, and now that sounds familiar. Yes, we did talk about that and how that's okay. delightful. Yeah, that's like that's what the that's what the thing should do. 
Yeah, and and actually, uh, games are really. Uh, you you mentioned Mario and games. There's this great video, and I don't even remember where it is, um, but I'll I'll try to find it for you later. That's talking about how the very first screen of the very first Super Mario Brothers game mm-hmm. is brilliant because absolutely everything on that screen is teaching you how to play the game. Mm-hmm. And everything that goes into it, the very first moment that you hit a block, and it, it makes it so that you can't do anything but jump and hit a block, and that coin pops out and it makes that sound, and it makes that delightful sound that says, I just did the right thing, and I get it. Yeah. Oh man, it's like I feel like it's so easy to do. I mean, like really good design is is really difficult, but there are so many little things that should be really easy to recognize as being a good or a bad thing and and they just like like with the the door that, you know, it's like all you have to do is get horizontal and vertical lines going and that's all you have to do. You know. Yes. Yes, and that's the kind of thing where you can just watch people for a while and watch them use a door and say, you know, a door that looks like this, what do people walk up and automatically do? They walk up and they automatically start pushing at it. A door that looks like this, what do they automatically do? They walk up and they pull at it. And so it, you, you do that for a couple, you know, dozen iterations of, of doors and you notice what you just said. It's like, you know, the horizontal lines on your door mean push. The vertical lines on your door mean pull, or if there's a handle, if there's a handle that juts out mm-hmm. in a way that you grasp it in a particular way, you just watch people's hands. Uh, that's another really good book if you've ever um, run across it. It's a book just called Hands. I don't remember who the, the oh. author is, um, but it talks about our hands and how they're made for very specific types of grips. And so if you make a, a tool that encourages that grip in a particular orientation, it'll be an easy-to-use tool. If you make a tool or a, or a, a grip or a, a handle that doesn't encourage us to make those grips, and this is like old swinging in the in the trees sort of grips, mm-hmm. then it'll be very hard to use and it'll be stressful. So, yeah. So, so is that uh, Hands by John Napier? Does that sound correct? That could be. Because it's either that or it's, the hand, how it's used, shapes brain language and human culture. I think it's probably that first one. Let me take a look at that. I would recognize the... Uh, yeah, it's John Napier. Okay. So, Hands by John Napier. And it's a thin book. It's a it's a nice thin book. But Yeah, I love that. And uh, The Design of Everyday Things. And then there was another one that was really good. Um, like The Design of the Paperclip or something. Uh, I don't know. There, there might be something like that. Maybe Paul Kondrowski. Oh, uh, history of the paperclip. Oh, history of the paperclip. Yes. Yeah. And let's see who wrote this. Uh, Michael Beirut, it looks like. Okay. I remember reading that as like a preteen and just being like, oh, this makes sense. I like this. Um, so, so I think this is, you know, a really basic and, and simple topic that we can mention and move on. But before we do, um, I wanted to ask something that occurred to me and I don't know if, I don't know if this is a correct observation, but, um, one of the things that Don Norman hates, I, I believe is the, uh, the MacBook uh, pro glass touchpad, right? The one that doesn't have any buttons, 
the one that doesn't tell you any, you know, violates all principles of discoverability. Um, and, and I, I think that it excels, um, despite that because, um, you can use it at multiple levels. Um, our society is really familiar with the, the concept of a touchpad and it feels really good. So it, it doesn't really piss you off as you're using it. Like it's really easy to do the same gesture over and over. And if you don't learn the gestures, that's fine. You don't, you know, you can get away without it. Um, but I wonder if our culture's fascination with things like that or with things like, um, phone OSs that look really sleek and have no words um, and are just shapes on a, on a touchscreen. I wonder if that's uh, influenced or promoted by the way that Hollywood has latched on to the minority report interface, you know, where it, it I looks think really related. Cool. Yeah. I, I, and that, and actually Hollywood is a really good term to use because one of the things that I noticed specifically about early Mac OS and the designs that were coming out of Apple around that time are that they started to look like the interfaces that we would see on screen in 90s TV and movies. So um, people point out a lot that uh, like the iPad looks like something that you would use in Star Trek The Next Generation, or you get these kind of minority report or, or similar interfaces, and they started to you started to see that kind of swooping around in large text and very clear text and um, there's a, there's an aspect of that that I think is actually really valuable because when you are telling a story on screen, you don't need necessarily a computer display that looks like, you know, something exciting is going on, but you really, really do need a computer display that says exactly what the, is coming out of somebody's mouth. So they need to look at the computer display and say, oh, here in the reactor room, there is an explosion and you need to mm-hmm. you need to see that there's a reactor room and you need to see that there's an explosion and so oftentimes what you'll see on screen and this is laughable to to us especially you know back in the day it'll say in huge letters reactor room <laughs> nothing else is labeled on this display except <laughs> reactor room in giant letters and then there's like something that looks very very much like you know a fire or an explosion or whatever um, there's a, a, I think, what was it? Spaceballs in Spaceballs. They actually joke about that. It's like, well, you know, let's, let's watch the, the film up to this point, or, you know, they're watching the film. Um, and there's, there's that aspect of it. It's like what, what's coming out of my mouth has to be backed up by what's on the screen, usually in a, a slightly inverted way where it's like, you walk up to the screen and, and you see the reactor room and you say that it's like, Oh, there's a fire in the reactor room. And it's like, I saw that he got that from the computer because that's what the computer said. Um, and we're starting to see that in, in OSs as well, where they digest the information for you. And it pops up a little thing in this kind of very swooshy pop-up that says, you have a meeting in five minutes. And you could just picture somebody in a film mm-hmm. looking at that. And reading almost directly what it says and saying, oh, I have a meeting in five minutes. I need to go. And they walk out of the room and it's the end of the scene. So we, we saw a lot more of that. There's getting back to the, the, the MacBook Pro and, and the glass touchpad and, and uh, the discoverability of something. So there's a lot of talk about the discoverability of something. And there's almost always 
this idea that the thing has to be, you have to be able to walk up with it, up, up to it with no prior knowledge of any of these things and be able to use it, which when you're talking about a door, uh, it, it kind of makes some sense because you need anybody to be able to walk up to this door and immediately know where to, whether to pull or push. Uh, it's, it's called uh, um, an affordance. It's the door tells you what it's capable of doing or what it's not capable of doing. A door that's not a door, so this door is, you know, no go, you can't enter it, should, you know, communicate that to you. So the idea with the touchpad is that, well, you should walk up to this touchpad and you should be able to, to know what to do. And I think that there's actually, um, there's a problem with that, which is that if you're assuming that somebody's walking up to this touchpad and needs to be able to use this touchpad, having never, say, used a computer before, then you're going to make all sorts of assumptions about what they have used before. It's like this touchpad needs to have, say, a button on it. Well, that assumes you know what a button is and what a button is for. Or it has to, you know, have some indication that that if you press on this, something's going to happen. But a lot of, in, in a lot of cases, especially with computer interfaces, what you're assuming is that you've used at least something like this before. And like this, in the realm of the current, you know, MacBook Pro, like the one that's sitting in front of me right now, is phones. There are a ton of people who are in this audience for this MacBook Pro who have used glass surface phones, glass surface iPads. They might even be, you know, somebody who's, let's see, when did the iPad come out? Was that seven years ago? Oh boy, at least. So you could have like a seven-year-old child who has never known anything but these glass surface like iPads and, you know, has been using them since being six months old. That person who walks up and sees kind of a glass surface with rounded edges and, you know, it's slightly different in texture from the, the surface around it, that's going to be the touchy point. And you're going to start tapping at that. Um, and then if you tap at it and you notice that the cursor is moving around the screen, it's very, very quick that you start thinking, my finger is that cursor. And then you start, you know, doing the things that you know how to do on a glass screen, like pinching and, and you know, swiping at things. And so you start pinching and swiping, and your brain has already translated that into, I'm touching the screen, because the thing that I'm touching, which is glass, and the thing that I'm looking at, which is glass, are operating in that mode that I'm used to, which is a glass front, you know, interaction. And that translation is very quick. And it holds. It doesn't surprise you at any point where it's like, oh, I'm trying to do this thing that I ordinarily would do on an iPad, and it's just not working. That's actually why they keep revising it. At least that's what I would guess. Is that it's it's getting bigger. It's getting all glass. Because you don't have a glass screen with a big old button on the second half of it. You don't have just one portion of it that you can press on. Um, it, it's, it, you need to make it so that that interaction doesn't break when you try to do something that your brain has already translated into the mode of. Yep. Yeah, exactly. <clears> oh, <throat> I, I wonder, I mean, like, I don't know. It, it's hard for me because I, I hate criticizing Apple and they've been so easy to criticize lately. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I, I wonder if they're moving too quickly, but 
but for me, like I, I really do like um, interfaces that are super, super slimmed down and hard to access because then they can be very, uh, very efficient and really easy for me, a, you know, a quote unquote power user in most things, it can be really easy for me to just cruise through stuff. Cause I've already learned, you know, I've got a, a, my list of expectations is very close to the people who built it and their expectations. Um, so it's hard for me to judge whether they're moving too quickly. Cause I really like not having a button or a physical button. Um, yeah, I haven't actually missed that at all. Um, so I have the, the latest, uh, the, the little MacBook Pro, um, which leads us to our next rant that I, <laughs> if, if we do want to pick holes uh, in what Apple's doing. Um, but I, I, I like the touchpad. The touchpad works. Um, the, the clicking actually, they, they do something that's actually, um, I think is, is great, which is allow a little bit of skeuomorphism. So skeuomorphism, mm. of course, is when you make a thing look like what it was. So I, uh, I'm trying to think of. Um, so it's the the Notes app and iOS looking like a yellow legal notepad. Exactly, exactly, and um, making it look like the the last thing that you saw that acted like this thing, which you know it it's it allows um, some models to be built in the brain more quickly. It's like oh, it's one of those. Um, you can take it way, way too far. There was actually a um, uh, a music player that, like an app uh, on on the the desktop um, that IBM was working on, and they made the music player look like a CD. So you would have this case, and you would bring up the case, and it would be for what we'd think of as a playlist. And then you would, you know, see the cover of the case, and you'd open the case up with your mouse. And then you would, there would be play controls on the inside, just like a CD, except no CD actually <laughs> works that way. And so it was this the worst use of skeuomorphism because yeah. it was, it was using all of the things that you don't actually need to interact with yeah. in a digital world and imposing then the things that you do need to interact, like play buttons and that kind of thing in a way that they, you wouldn't have had in your, your old skeuomorphism. So. The, the one thing that they do with the, the touchpad that they learned from uh, the, the previous uh, trackpads is when you press on it, it makes a click. And it makes a click basically like by fooling you into thinking something has actually clicked. There is no switch that is clicking, but you're expecting there when you press down, you get this feedback, um, ha it's haptic feedback, that says, oh, that switch that's inside of here that recorded me clicking, that I, I just tripped it, and I can feel that. Well, they're, they're tricking you into doing that. It's a little piezo that basically says, oh, you know, I got it. I'm going to feed that back to you by making it feel like a click, um, which it builds on something that it, it's a skeuomorphism. It's building on something that you've come into this with, but it's a skeuomorphism that's like the, the shortest distance to the last thing that you used, which was a pad just like this, but on the previous version. You can actually turn off that click if you don't need it, and it'll work more like you know an iPad, which doesn't click when you, you press down on it. Um, so let's talk about where touch fails. Two places. Wait, wait, hang on a sec. So, okay. uh, I, I've got, I think, two generations back in the MacBook Pros. Um, I do have an actual physical um, button in my trackpad. Yes. And I forgot that they had switched, they had gotten rid of the button. And you, 
So um, does it um, on the iPhones now they've got the force touch, I think is what they call it, or 3D touch or something where mm-hmm. it can tell how hard you're pressing on it, which um, often triggers a, a haptic click, which is really satisfying to me on my phone. Um, it the, the trackpad also does that, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. And that's actually something that they learned when they were... I, I said it was from the previous external trackpad. I'm now realizing it was actually on the Magic Mouse. And so oh. when they built the Magic Mouse, they needed something where if you pressed on the, you know, the top end, it would make a click because that's what you're expecting from a previous mouse is that you press it down and clicks and that's what happens. Um, there was no actual physical switch. It was actually doing the same thing where you press down and it was defecting, de- uh, detecting the deformation in what you've touched. Um, or, well, it was a little bit more like tapping. But anyway, they put a speaker in it. And there's a speaker mm-hmm. in it that makes a little click when you do that. Well, they brought that forward to uh, these uh, touchpads where it is. It's it's force touch, just like on the, the phones. But when you force touch on this, um, I, I didn't actually realize that the, the phones do this as well. It makes a little haptic uh, click feedback. And, you know, honestly, I would argue that that's um, if that is. See, I just grabbed my phone to do force clicks on notifications on my screen because I like it so much. Um, if that is um, a, a skeuomorphism, I'd say it's one that needs to stay because feedback is a super important property of good design, right? Correct. And you and you shouldn't get rid of all skeuomorphisms just because they're skeuomorphisms because they can still remain in your mental model of how the thing works. So if if you think of it, there's this kind of cliff that you go off. And if you were to press that and click it, you know, or, or kind of pre- force touch it, you know, it, to try to use something that doesn't actually have the, the skeuomorphism built into the name. If you were to do that and there was no feedback at all, then there's always this little catch that happens in your brain. It's like, mm-hmm. did, did that actually happen? Did the action happen? Uh, you have to rely on whatever it is that you're trying to click on for the the feedback, and that might be, you know, 200 milliseconds away, and and your brain has lots of time to to crash and burn in that time. Mm. So that's a usable uh, skeuomorphism. If you're you know looking at a, a multi-window display, and it looks like some windows are in front of other windows because of shadows, because of you know lighting conditions, because of that kind of thing. Those are all still skeuomorphisms, but they're really useful skeuomorphisms mm-hmm. that that you know they come forward. So there's this back and forth over the line. Um, mm-hmm. You'll see this in like flat icons versus like chunky icons, mm-hmm. icons that look like things versus icons that are super abstract. Um, designers jump back and forth over the skeuomorphism totally line, true. you know, over and over again. And some of that it it just comes down to style. Um, so yeah, it's not always obvious. Yeah. That, it, you know, I, I have seen that, but I never really put it together that, yeah, there is an oscillation back and forth. Um, yeah, that's true. So let me get to, to the thing that I want to rant about, which is, Oh yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. The, the touch bar. Oh yeah. I want to, I want to hear your opinion on this. <laughs> <laughs> so the touch bar feels to me like one of those things where it, it has, potentially one usable feature and then everything about it just 
bugs me. It, it seems <laughs> egregious and very expensive and not really what you want. So the idea is that you replace the top row of buttons on a keyboard with a touchpad. And that touchpad, in theory, should be able to duplicate all of those buttons. But right, then it's when... not just a touchpad, it's also a display. Yes, exactly. So it is, it's, you know, like a, a very tiny linear phone. Um, <laughs> and a 1D iPhone, yeah. Exactly. And so um, it gives you the best of both worlds. You can do other things when you're not using those keys. And then when you need to use those keys, you make it be those keys again. Which, it, it, it just, for me, it just launched it way over the usability line. So one of the things that immediately occurs to you know, a ton of people who use uh, Macs all the time for, for work is that included amongst those keys is the escape key, which for better or for worse has become a very important programming key. Um, it's, it's just one of those things that you use all of the time without thinking about it. It's a great place for a key. It's all the way over mm -hmm. on the corner. And so mm -hmm. it's a key that you generally don't have to hunt to find. The bigger you can make that key, the better it is. So there's a, um, a really old now um, a design principle in, and I don't even, it's like Fitz Law or something like that, um, in user interface design, where the uh, your ability to hit a target is inversely proportional to um, the, the, the distance from you, where you are right now to that target but it can be improved by improving the size of that target. So if you're going to have somebody hit something, say, on a screen, you make it bigger the farther away it is, or you make it closer to where they're, um, they're you know, touching right now, which is why um, a context menu can be small because it's right where you are already, um, but then you, know, uh, you want to hit something that's big if it's far away. But then there's a, a corresponding rule which is that anything that is on the edge of a screen or, or a, um, a panel, it can count all of the space beyond it as mm -hmm. part of itself. And so, for instance, if you're, if you're on an Apple, uh, a modern Apple, there's a menu, which is the Apple menu, which is if you just scoot all the way over to the corner of the screen and tap, you hit the Apple menu. And because it's the corner of the screen, you can ha you can like just keep zooming on your whatever you're using your mouse your your touchpad until you're you're sitting in the corner and know that you've hit it, which means that it is effectively an infinitely sized button. <laughs> the escape button, if you make it big enough, is roughly similar. Where it's something where it's like I know it's over here. I can just hazily see my keyboard but understand that the escape button is the one over in that corner. And so even though it's far away from your home key, it's a lot easier to hit. Yeah, and it's funny because the escape key is actually the, the inverse of the Apple menu, right? Because the Apple menu, you push up in that direction and, and you know, those the two edges of the screen are going to guide you in and you're going to get it eventually. Um, but the escape key is kind of the other the exact opposite because I tend to reach beyond it and then pull backwards and it's the first thing I touch. Yeah. That's a good way of looking at it. It's kind of this almost hooking behavior. So you, 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 and, and I'm realizing that as I'm like kind of visualizing myself do this, 
you hook past it and then you come and it's the first thing you come to, mm-hmm. um, which is, yeah. So the escape key, super useful for that. It's actually one of the reasons why I dislike laptops that have a function key in the lower corner rather than control because control stops being as useful as it could be because you know you're you're at the command line you're control seeing and control Ving and control you know all of the things um you're probably not control Ving, but you're you're control seeing to to make things stop um and you're control everything else to make them go but it's now the the second um button over if you're on a uh, a laptop um, the the arrow keys being down in the corner also useful. Uh, folks who play a lot of games um, can uh, can attest to that as well. Um, and then uh, the the delete button, although it's not entirely uh, over uh, in the corner, it could be in the corner. Uh, I'm saying delete. It's it's backspace on some keyboards. So kind of those four corner spots are very handy uh, to use. What the touch bar does is it just tosses that the heck out of the window because now you've got an escape indicator on the edge of the touch bar, which is still in that corner, but it's not all the way over in the corner because they can't actually make the touchpad like detect all the way out to the edge of it. So if you do what you were just talking about, where you go all the way out and you hook back in and you, and you tap it, nothing happens. Mm-hmm. And that right there should have said it's like oh no we're not ready to to release this thing because we can't make anything happen in that case mm. the second thing is that it's not a button anymore it's not a physical button and of course you know i just talked about like you don't need this physical button because <laughs> of all of this touching and that kind of thing well the one thing that you know you go put 10 programmers in a room and you give them the choice between a flat screen, like an mm-hmm. iPad or something like that, that has a, a, a virtual keyboard on it, or a keyboard, and then say, you're going to be working on code for the next four hours. Which one of these do you want to use? They'll all choose the physical keyboard. Mm-hmm. There's something about... It, it's over the skeuomorphic line, I guess, to completely take away all of that feedback, that kind of touchable feedback. Well, it's, it's differentiation, isn't it? Uh, on a trackpad, you really only have one button. I mean, you know, you can argue that you got a right, a right button too, but uh, on a, on a keyboard, like you've got so many different buttons. If the keyboard was just a positional sensor, then fine. You don't need buttons, but it's, it's not. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think that all of those, like you said, that differentiation between um, the key and the key next to it um, means that I can touch whether I'm kind of, you know, drifting to one side or the, the other. Um, there's always that kind of humorous effect when you drift too far and you kind of relatch onto keys that are next to the keys that you intend. Mm-hmm. Um, I actually have a version of my, you know, my name is Chris. I sign things Chris. But actually, if you ever get something from me that's signed CJROS, you know that basically one of my hands was scooted over a little bit um, because of you know the 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 way that that happens. Um, but we can, yeah, we can use our fingers and our touch to actually figure out where we are in the keyboard, which means that I can be looking at an enormous screen, which is the best kind of screen. And, you know, concentrate on that screen while my fingers are are doing work. It's roughly equivalent to what I was talking about before, where 
if I'm touching on a touchpad and I'm seeing on the screen, my brain will do that translation eventually for me and say that I'm touching the screen indirectly without making me actually lift my hand and get tired. The keyboard and the screen is very much like that, where if I can rest my hands on the keyboard and keep them there, mm-hmm. my brain can actually remap the keyboard in through my fingers so that I feel like I'm acting on the screen directly and my mental model is acting on the screen directly with all of these keys. If you've ever watched somebody you know, play a, a really complicated video game that's all keyboard, um, there, there's a lot of like zipping around that they do without ever actually needing to look at the keyboard. So again, with that, with that touchpad, or not touchpad, but the touch bar, the the difficult is that what they call it i'm i'm now like second guessing my ability to actually remember apple's names for things yeah i think it's i think it's touch bar touch bar so yeah, with the yeah, touch, bar, touch bar the whole point of the touch bar is that it's going to change and do different things at different times yeah. and because of that if it's down where the keyboard is you have to look at it it's requiring you to look at it you're going to swipe through photos or you're going to you know um adjust the the uh, um the volume of something by you know sliding back and forth it's just all of those interactions and you know i'm not going to list them all but every single one of those interactions that i've seen them do requires you to be looking at it because it breaks that model of if I just land my finger where I'm expecting to go and slide it around or do the interaction, it's not going to act the way that I expect, just like with the escape key. So, yeah, I and and quite honestly, I wouldn't be quite so angry if the all of the computers that even for work that I'm you know sizing up for people to buy, they have the touch bar on them. And it's, I think, something like a $400 or $500 premium over the mm. last model of that same computer just because of the touch bar. And, and so really what you're doing is you're, you're being charged four or $500 for this thing that's basically a mess. So yeah. don't do that. <laughs> See, and, and that's so disappointing because I, I love the idea of having that extra display um, that can, you know, cause I never remember what the function keys do. Um, I only use the function keys for, uh, for the volume and the screen brightness. I l- literally don't use any of the other ones. Um, in fact, I'm only just now learning that, uh, or the, the keyboard shortcuts and illustrator that use the function keys, um, like a function, I think it's function two, it's F2 or F3 will like, will lock, uh, objects on the, on the canvas, which is really important. If you're, you know, trying to manipulate a complex, uh, assembly of things where you want to lock one thing and overlay other things and then, you know, quickly unlock everything so you can select your entire group of things that you just assembled and move it somewhere else. And it's really frustrating because I, I, I want those to be you know, command letter key combos instead of function F2 <laughs> buttons. Um, yes. So, so I really like the idea of, of having that be, be readable. Um, but yeah, it, it limits you at that point because once, you know, once you learn where that button is, you're never going to be able to do it quickly. You're still going to have to look down and, you know, get your finger moving in the right direction, which is why, and, and phones can get away with that because you are, it, it's your primary screen that you're touching. But right. putting a screen on the keyboard. 
Yeah, and 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 I mean, I've thought about it. it's like okay, I I can see some of the use cases that they're trying to solve with this. It's something that's a little bit more interactive directly, and so you can have something that's a little bit more like a phone-like experience. I just I I think that cramming it into the thinnest, like smallest space mm-hmm. on the keyboard is is ultimately self-defeating, especially when you're almost always for the inner the 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 applications that they want these interactions to be for you're almost always going to have an enormous screen as well, uh, whether it's a, you know, a big laptop that you're working with or, or um, you've got some 4 or 5K display that you're actually doing like photo editing on. You're then going to look at this incredibly tiny screen mm-hmm. that's wedged into your keyboard in order to make this interaction. Um, I'd almost want like a strip just like that, but on the screen itself. And so like the the lower like one-tenth of the screen is also touch-capable, and I mm. could do those things with with the uh, the touch buttons there. I don't know. It's it's a little weird, but... Yeah, that's almost like a, like a glass cockpit where you tend to have buttons around the edges of screens that are physical buttons. Um, what what was that um, that keyboard that had the LCD keycaps? Oh, um... I know the and one why the heck is it about. not on every desk today? Like that that should have worked. Yeah, if if I remember correctly, they were making them and they they were fantastically expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, no, I don't remember the name of it. Yeah. It was it was what like a decade ago. Yeah. But uh, but yes, I, I I actually I like that um, that that idea of um, being able to uh, you know. I, you know, quite honestly, even just changing the LEDs that are under um, the the keycaps on mm. uh, on most keyboards, I, I think most keyboards have these, like mm-hmm. where they light up. Yeah. Um, just change those so that they can be different colors. Yeah, that'd be nice. Um, so that you know, and make that you know definable by software. Yeah. Um, so because I've seen those overlays where people are like, oh, all of your you know, Photoshop keys are over here and all the edit keys are, are down here. Yeah. I mean, just you just need to be able to hint at things sometimes. But Man, Yeah, it's such a bummer that, I mean, Apple lost its muse, right? Like, oh, I, I hope that they're going to be able to recover, but they lost their muse. And and I feel like if, if Jobs was around, they could have solved this problem eventually. Uh, or at least they would have known that they hadn't solved it yet. Like I feel like there's such a great solution because that it's such a it's it's a step in the right direction. It is. It is a step in the right direction. And I think probably what what would have happened a decade ago is it would have been in a hardware lab somewhere as a prototype, mm-hmm. and it just never would have made it out the door. I I don't know enough about their internal process to to know that for certain. But that feels like. Some of the things that I've heard have just kind of gone to the hardware lab to die uh, because they just, they're like, ah, oh, this is such a great idea that doesn't actually work. Now, I mean, again, all of that said, the reason why I'm most angry about that is because I do still want to keep using Macs. And I, I actually think that some great improvements have been made in all of the boring arenas um, on MacBook Pros. Um, I love the new keyboard. Um, I I didn't quite so much like the ones on the the MacBooks, which is the prior revision of this kind of keyboard. Um, it's very clacky for how small or, or mm-hmm. I guess thin it is, um, and I think they they did a lot of good with that. 
the actual enclosure of the um I'm I'm using a 13 inch uh, MacBook Pro. The enclosure is so amazingly solid. That's actually mm-hmm. something that I have been impressed by every iteration is how it feels more solid. It feels more rugged. Uh, even though I then get to the next one, I'm like, oh, this is even more solid. <laughs> um, the, it's the pick it up by the corner test, right? Exactly, yeah. which I could do with a MacBook Air. And that was actually what impressed me when I, I got one for uh, for Karen back in whatever it was, 2011. And uh, is that? No, that can't be. Anyway, um, anyway, whenever I got that. Uh, I, that pick it up by the corner mm-hmm. test means that suddenly it's a different kind of appliance. Mm-hmm. It's it's much more of a grab and go. And uh, now I have that, and I've got a MacBook Pro that actually you know beats the heck out of my prior 15 inch MacBook Pro that I was using as a you know a desktop replacement. Um, and so I, I definitely think that that those things are are getting better. I love the bigger. Um, glass uh, trackpad. The the fact that they're able to do that and make the thing lighter and have a better battery to the point where mm-hmm. I'm on battery right now. I don't really give it a second thought because, you know, I don't have to think. It's like, oh, I'm only going to be able to record audio for an hour. Um, it just lasts for a very long time. So all of those things also contribute to the user experience. And those things are getting better. Um, it's just... If, if the thing that you concentrate on is this one big feature because it's splashy and it's different and it feels more kind of, you know, WWDC, unveil it um, kind of thing, it's, it's the sexy innovation, but it's a, it's a hot mess, then, yeah, it's, it, it overshadows those others. Yeah. And, you know, like, that's the thing is like, I'm never super impressed by the release, right? Like the, the, the keynote talk and it's like, oh yeah, that's, you know, that's really cool. And I get excited because it's a very emotional thing, but I'm not, I'm, it's not the kind of thing that I think about until I've gone to the Apple store and I touch the new iPhone and then I'm like, oh yeah, that's going to haunt my dreams. I want this in my pocket. Um, Yeah. For me, the test is always if I start using the new thing and then I go back to the thing that I have, which is, you know, prior version. And I'm like, what is this brick of garbage? It's like, I, ah, uh. but yeah. 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 I'm currently going back and forth between uh, my iPhone six S uh, and my iPhone four S I think. Um, Cause my, my four S is in, is in my work van uh, acting as a uh, um, as a dash cam because I've seen too many people behave like real idiots on the road and I'm also a cheapskate and I refuse to go buy a dedicated camera to put in my windshield um, and it's easy enough to, to turn an iPhone into a dash cam and like yeah. every time I pick it up it's just like it, it's tiny the screen looks like garbage uh it's slow. I forgot how slow these phones used to be. Um, and like now I, I, I get really impatient if it doesn't recognize my fingerprint the first time around, you know? Yeah. And that's actually a, another big point of user experience, especially for anybody who's working on anything having to do with computer user experience is 
never underestimate the power of doing something quicker mm-hmm. or having it be more responsive. Um, you know, I wrote a whole book about this, but uh, the the idea is that if you are, you know, using the web or using a, an application or using, you know, an interface, sometimes you can make everything so much better just by shaving a few hundred milliseconds off of the the response time of of what you're doing. And if you feel like it's like, well, this thing used to take four seconds to load and now it only takes one second. And so now we're done. Nope. You know, everybody's going to get used to one second. That'll Mm -hmm. be the new normal. They'll Mm -hmm. call you and complain when it's back to four Uh seconds. But if you make it half a second, that's even better. And one second is going to feel like, you know, molasses at that point. If you can make it 200 milliseconds, even better. If you can make it then 50 milliseconds. I mean, just, you know, ping Google servers sometimes at some time and you will find that they come back in, you know, if you're, if you've got good internet, 10 milliseconds. And that's because it's important. It's Mm -hmm. like, that's critical in all of these areas. Um, there, so if, if you're at a company that has not hired somebody to do, (laughs) be kind of the, the performance czar, uh, then they probably need to get on that. Yeah, th- there's a reason there are uh, benchmarking tools everywhere in every corner uh, of the computer design world. There's you know there's a benchmarking suite for everything because <laughs> uh, yes. that that's super important. Um, so so if if we're gonna call this a rant cast, uh, you got to give me a second to rant about response time. Oh yeah, uh, in a very specific thing that nobody is gonna be able to. Uh, to, to understand on the level that I do it, I, I work with in-house software and, um, we recently did, um, a big, what do they call it? Data modernization study where they looked at all of the, all the users that use our data and all of the devices that we use to collect the data. And they said, okay, well, we, we've got to do a big, uh, modernization and here are all the different little things that we can do. And one of the things that they decided to do was to pull our data entry and data review application out of a, an actual native application and turn it into a browser-based application, um, which means that everything is slower. I mean, when you're saying a few hundred milliseconds, we're talking about like, you know, two seconds to load a, a page that used to pop up in, you know, a hundred milliseconds. Um, if not quicker, cause it was all running in windows. Um, and, uh, that's, that's been really frustrating. Um, and then what got really frustrating was they made a change that was completely behind the scenes. We have no, as users, we have no idea what this change was, but all of a sudden our, um, our images, because we, we categorize for each report that we submit, we categorized, uh, maybe two, 300 photos, um, when you go into um, to a photo, you have to take out any identifying information. So license plate numbers of, of people who were associated with the crash, um, uh, address numbers like house addresses on the, you know, on houses or street signs or anything all has to come out. And when you have put big black boxes over those things that need to, to get sanitized is what we call it and click done it should take us, it should take a second to upload that data to the server, right? Like no, nobody thinks that this is going to be instant. 
but they made this change and now it takes literally a minute and a half. Oh, jeez. <laughs> okay. Yeah. And uh, it, it, I mean, it, it went from 20 seconds, which really pissed me off to a minute and a half. And so now I don't, I don't get anything done at work because a minute and a half turns into a half hour real quick. Oh yeah. Um, when you turn around and start doing something else. Um, well, and, and that's actually, um, there are a couple of time horizons. I, somebody must have actually listed these out. So I bet they're out there, but there are time horizons on which, um, actual people doing actually thing, actual things. So like mm. if you come back in 10 milliseconds, it's considered instant. If you come back in a hundred milliseconds, it's somebody who's willing to wait while they're still like hands on keyboard or hands on, on screen. If you come back in a second, it's somebody who will probably, their eyes will drift over mm-hmm. to, you know, it's like, Oh, do I have any new novi- notifications? Do I have new email? If you take like five seconds, they're probably going to switch tabs to something mm-hmm. else. Yeah. And it's like, Oh, well, I was going to do that other things. If you take. 30 seconds they may wander away and start doing another thing if what did you say it was like a minute and a, half. Um, a litter i i timed uh several of them and yes it was yeah. a minute 20 to a minute 30 yeah that's you know you go you start writing an email you go and and the whole point is that you're choosing to interrupt yourself now instead of completing that task, which is why then you come back and you're like, oh, okay, well, it's done with that one, so I'll start the next one. And it, it's like every single one is an interruption. And uh, yeah, absolutely. Well, and it gets better on the other side of that. If it's a task that takes five minutes of wait time, five minutes I can deal with because I can go and, you know, I can set a timer. I mean, that, I mean at that point, it's almost like a... Um, a free Pomodoro timer, right? Like five minutes, I can go and do something for five minutes and come back and take two seconds to do something and go back to whatever I'm doing. But yes. a minute and a half is, I think it's maybe the definition of actual hell. Um, having to sit and not do anything for a minute and a half. Oh, my <laughs> Oh, yeah, that, it would be interesting to uh, to do a user study and see how many people um, check Twitter or something that's like very, very low effort mm. um, during that time because they just can't do anything else. Oh. And so you're you're basically I mean, you're you're literally wasting a minute and a half every time. Uh, at that well, point. no, you're you're wasting more than a minute and a half. I think a minute and a half is like the perfect amount of time to encourage you to do a two minute task, you know. Oh, it's so bad. So yeah, I have to have Netflix running on my laptop on my desk so that I can look at Netflix and have a show that I I've seen maybe once before so I can follow the plot with ignoring it every every couple of minutes. Yes. Um, but I can still distract myself so that I don't, you know, literally shove a fork into my thigh. Um, yeah, could, so people could, don't oh. don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> and so and bad actually have it be somebody's responsibility to uh-huh. capture that kind of problem and work on it as, as fast as you can. Yeah. Cause that's, that's bad. Well, and the, the problem is that our development team does not, um, they don't prioritize issues. Um, they, they work in sort of a bastard agile, uh, methodology, um, because they, they do agile sprints, but the way they select what goes into a sprint is completely random. 
Um, so you'll get a, you know, a sprint every month or so. Um, when they do the, the release, it'll have, oh, we updated this icon. And then, you know, the elephant in the room is, okay, well, it still takes a minute and a half to upload this. And, you know, it's, it, it takes longer to save this image than it did to upload it the first time, you know? Um, so yeah, it's just, I mean, you'd think that they would have somebody on high priority tasks like this, but they simply can't, I mean, they can't even identify them. They don't even do, uh, any testing when they release stuff. Um, in theory, they have a human tester, but they don't have a, a test suite written out. Yeah. And that's actually something that, that testing doesn't have to be hard. Um, whether it's, you know, person UX testing or automated testing, um, even if it's person UX, UX testing, if you can sit down a customer in front of the thing that you have made and watch them use it for two hours, I bet you can get an entire, you know, prioritized list of things that need to be operated on. And then when you've, you know, worked through half of that list, you go sit down with them or preferably somebody new um, for another half hour and do the same thing again, and you'll get another probably prioritized list because you just watch the things that are bugging them the most. Mm -hmm. It's again, it's, it's not hard. You just need to remember to do it and be willing to follow through on it. Well, and I feel really better because the alternative to that is to have a highly motivated user who speaks the language and is willing to do, um, extensive debugging to come up with a, with replication steps and we'll do all of this for free on top of his other work. Uh, yeah. that's, that's the alternative. They have that alternative available to them and they still ignore all my tickets. Um, yeah, it's, uh, it, it's the worst thing about my job. I, I genuinely enjoy my job for the most part. This, this gives me a headache. Uh, okay. Well, well, as a as a software person, I will try not to do that. <laughs> oh man, I, I yeah, I, I'm so passionate about UX and UI design. Like, I, I feel like it's it, it's like a fine wine. Like, it, it's it's better than wine because wine is is hard to access as a new person. Um, but like, it's something that that's really it's just like giving somebody American chocolate and then German chocolate. Yes. Uh, like they instantly know the difference and they instantly go, what have I been eating all these years? Yes. You know, like it's, it's, oh man. Okay. Well, we're getting close to an hour. So I think we should probably wrap it up from here. Okay. Uh, before my headache gets worse. I, I literally started getting a throbbing headache in my left temple when I started talking about this. Oh dear. I think I'm, I think I'm like getting ready to stroke out. <laughs> okay. Well, I, go, go use a good interface somewhere. Calm back down. <laughs> You know, have some uh, good chocolate. Yeah, yeah, I wish. No, I think I think I'm just uh, getting dehydrated. I think I need to go drink some water. But it oh, was yeah. uh, it, this was a a really good use of my hour. I think. Good, absolutely, and and maybe we won't make this the last one. I would hope not, because um, that was literally one or two items off of uh, like a page that I have written up. Great. All right, <laughs> let's do it again then. All right, talk to you later. Okay.